Oh, stop it. No, <laughs> no it's so good to be with you guys. Um, as always, good morning. Love you, church family. If you have your copy of God's Word, turn with me to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 6 is where we're going to be. And this morning, we're continuing our series in It's Time to Pray, right? And so last week, one of the things that Doug was able to, to, to kind of show us from the book of Hosea is that prayer is, uh, is, is of massive importance in our life and, and our Christian life. And we're going to kind of dive further into that. And he kind of set the tone for why we are called to pray. Right? Why is it that, that God calls us to pray? And one of the things that the Hose, book of Hosea draws out is that prayer is, is a time of repentance, right? That we collectively sometimes have our hearts hardened. Just uh, Sometimes we do that ourselves. Sometimes the circumstances around us does that. Sometimes just life happens. And we need our hearts to be cultivated afresh and new so that new life can occur. And so today, we're going to, to kind of move a little bit further into the idea of prayer and looking at Jesus's, uh, Jesus's kind of his prayer the, how, as he teaches the disciples to pray. And as I was preparing uh, this week, one of, the, one of the quotes that came to mind was this, that from Martin Luther says, to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. To be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. And if this is true, why does it seem so difficult to us? If it is of the utmost importance, just as the air that we breathe, the act of breathing itself, then why is prayer often so difficult? And why do we often fall short? And why do we often uh, just choose not to do it? Right? That's one of the questions that I, I want us to, to look at today. And as I considered this idea, I, I thought of a couple of different times in my life that breathing required training. And so in some situations, actually, breathing does require training. And I'll, and I'll give you a couple of examples. The first example was when I was a senior in high school. And I've told many of you guys about uh, that I was in a senior play at that point. And we had, I'd never been in any way, shape, or form vocally trained or anything like that. I just sang, sang in the shower, did whatever I wanted to do. However, you know, that felt right in that moment. But I went to some vocal training, not very much, but I went enough for her to identify that I was not breathing properly. I was breathing too high instead of out of my diaphragm. And so the, it, it wasn't sustained. And so because of that, I was... I was honestly kind of confused. Some of you in music kind of understand that you have to breathe properly in order for everything to end up sounding the way it, it, as best it possibly can be. That was a shock to my system. I never realized something as inherently easy as breathing um, wasn't correct. I wasn't doing it right. That would, that would be like if one of you came up to me afterwards and said that, that eating pizza rolls was bad for me. I'd be like, what? No way. I, I would think you're a liar. I simply would not believe it. And now, uh, actually, a second time, 
uh, this has kind of happened is, is pretty recently. So I've started swimming once or twice a week as part of a, kind of a regiment to try to be physically healthier. And what I found out there is you have to also be trained to breathe well in swimming. Because guess what I started to do after uh, like a lap or two? <gasps> and what do you not want to do with water? Suck it in, <laughs> right? You want to keep it on the outside of your body. And so what I found out is, is that I had to relearn the rhythms of breathing while I was sl- swimming. I couldn't take gasps anymore. It would have to be slower and through the nose. And so I didn't want to drown myself or suck in a ton of water. But I, I want you to know that if breathing is, does require some manner of training, and prayer is, is like breathing, it's as necessary in the Christian life as breathing, I want you to know that it's not just us that struggled. Prayer seemed unnatural for the disciples too. In fact, in Luke chapter 11, there's only record of one time in the Gospels where the disciples ask Jesus to teach them something. And it's in Luke 11 with the Lord's Prayer. They come to him and say, Jesus, will you teach us how to pray? For, something, for some reason, prayer was not natural to them. And they were walking with Jesus, right? They were seeing miracles. Notice that, that in the life of Jesus, they never asked him how he did his miracles. They never asked him how he walked on the water. They never asked him to teach him how he cast out demons He gave them authority and they went and did it. They never asked how the story went, that how he turned the water into wine. The only thing they asked him about is how are we supposed to pray? So if you're in here today and you're like, I just, I don't know. It feels uncomfortable. Maybe it feels like I'm hitting a glass ceiling. It, It feels like I'm just speaking into empty space. Know that you're not alone. That the people that physically walked with Jesus himself didn't understand and didn't know. And I I think it's because maybe it's the least natural thing to us. It's the least natural thing to us. It's why in Romans 8.26, Paul says this, for we do not know how to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So we don't know how to or even for what to pray, which is why the Lord's Prayer is so powerful. John, oh my goodness, I'm going to butcher this name. You're going to see it on the screen. Um, so John Anwuchekwa, there we go. Did not want to butcher that. As He says this, as Jesus teaches us to pray, he doesn't begin by teaching us how to ask. Instead, he tells us what to ask for. He gives us our priorities before he gives us a process. And so this is what we're going to dive into today. Jesus is going to teach us and and take us on a journey of of how we are to pray by actually helping us prioritize in and of ourselves what we actually ought to be praying for. And so look with me at Matthew 6, beginning in verse 5. And when you get there, say word. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door 
and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not empty up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Why is this so powerful? The Lord's Prayer is so powerful, in fact, that in the second century church, I learned this week as I was listening to a sermon actually on this text by John Tyson, one of the things that he told us and, and, and uh, that amazed me actually is that the services of the second century church were divided into two parts. The first part would be much like this. We, they would sing, there would be a time of prayer, uh, of, of greeting, and then also there would have been time of, of preaching and reading the word. Then, and that time was open to both believers and unbelievers. Then there would come a point in the service when they would ask all of the unbelievers and those who had not been baptized to actually excuse themselves and to leave the church service. And they would enter into a second portion of their church service where they would do three things. The first thing that for the catechized believers, those who had followed through in baptism, they would have the holy kiss of peace. So they would greet each other with a holy kiss, as Paul does, knowing that each other are truly believers. The second thing that only the believers would take part in that had been baptized was the Lord's Supper. They would partake in that together. And the third thing that they would do, that they would save to the end, is the Lord's Prayer. There's something so powerful about this prayer, of how it reorients our hearts and our lives. It invites us to pray in the way that God himself has shown us a template for how to pray. And so this wasn't something that they would give on the front end of the discipleship process. In fact, it would take sometimes up to two to three years for a person who had confessed faith in Jesus to go through this process that they would be called catechumen. So it was almost like an initiation process to evaluate your life, to evaluate the fruit before they baptized you. And then it was the last thing, the Lord's Prayer being taught to them was the last thing that happened as kind of they entered into their new life of discipleship. Why is that? I think because it totally reorients, reorients our, our lives as believers. And I'm going to sum it up as best I can in three words. The Lord's Prayer can be summed up in relationship, in surrender, and in dependence. Relationship, surrender, and dependence. So I'm going to ask certain questions that the Lord's Prayer makes us answer. And then how the Lord's Prayer, as Jesus teaches us, reorients our hearts away from ourselves and from maybe things that, that are more trivial to God's priorities. And the first one is this. The Lord's Prayer makes us answer, whose am I? Not who am I. 
Not first, whose am I? And so just so you know, if if you miss some of the things, because it's a, a little more developed outline again, I printed some in the back again for you. So you don't have to freak out if you miss it. So the Lord prayer, the Lord's prayer makes us answer, whose am I? Now, why is that question considered? Look at, with me again at, at verse 9. And what does Jesus pray? He, he, says, he says this, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Our Father, our Father. It's easy to just kind of skim past that. And if you grew up in the South and played sports, chances are you learned to do this before practice. And it's just kind of, you, you just, you know, whimsically say it and not even think about our Father, how to be the name. You can come, all right, let's go play ball and coach. You can start cursing again. You know, like that's kind of how our society has kind of taken the Lord's prayer. But it's, it's meant for so much more. And our Father means two things. Our prayer initially must orient us away, and this is our reorientation. The first one, our prayer should reorient us away from isolation and loneliness to relationship and closeness. It reorients us away from that. This is why Paul in Romans 8, 15 through 17 must remind us this thing. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Meaning if you're a believer, you are a son and daughter of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. As far as I can tell, Jesus is the first person that comes on the scene and calls God Father. This is new language, new verbiage that is brought in by the people that ultimately will follow Jesus. The reason you and I can cry, Abba, Father, is because he is first Jesus' Father. And Jesus, through his death, burial, and resurrection, has brought us in. And we've been given a, a new spirit, not one of slavery, not one of isolation, not one of, uh, of being a, a spirit of an orphan, but a spirit of the Son, the Spirit himself bears witness, it says, with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be also glorified with him. The idea of our Father kind of reorients us because it reminds us, I am not alone. So the next time you pray this, our Father, don't, don't just jump past it. Think about, some of you didn't have good experiences and didn't have good earthly fathers to think about. And that's something that God in, in his mercy and his grace will help you to learn and understand the depth of his love and his closeness. But we have a Father who loves us. A Father who listens and inclines his ear to hear us. A father who shows compassion to our flaws and our weaknesses. Our father who covers us with his love, even though we deserve wrath. We have a father who takes care of our needs and gives us good gifts. This is who our father is. This is why we stop and say, 
no matter what is going on, there, I'm not alone, and there is a Father who loves me and cares for me. He's the creator of the universe, and we'll get to that in just a second. But I also don't want to glance over the word our. Because the Lord's Prayer is not just a personal prayer. It's a corporate prayer. It's a prayer that means that it reminds you not only am I not alone in the universe, there is a God who is for me, who loves me, and in Christ I can call out and he inclines the ear to me. But not only that, but I am a part of an hour. I'm a part of a family in which he brings me into. I'm a part of a body in which Jesus has brought me into. So I'm brought and bought into a new family who is there with me in this. It reminds us that we're not alone and brings us because naturally we wanna step back in times of trouble. Sometimes we wanna isolate ourselves and the Lord's prayer immediately says, no, I have a father who knows me, who loves me, who forgives me, calls me son, makes me an heir. And I have a church family. I have a body that cares for me and loves me. They may do so imperfectly and do so imperfectly, but it doesn't make it not true. The second truth that we see in the end of verse 9 and then verses 5 and 6 is the Lord's Prayer makes us answer, what do I desire most? Whose am I? And then what do I desire most? Look with me at verses 5 and 6 and then 9 and 10. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. So Jesus is talking in this, this is in the context of the Sermon on the Mount. So he's, he's speaking to a, a large group of people and he kind of gives this general teaching. And, and evidently in that time, the Pharisees would walk around and they wanted everybody to know that, that they were the hot stuff. Like they were the, they were the holy guys. And they made, they went out of their way to make sure that they knew. And he says that if our hearts are like that, if we pray like that, then our reward has already been gained. But he says, I say to you, when you go into prayer, pray in your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. This doesn't mean that we can't pray in public. It means that our heart must be right. We can't only pray in public. And so in verse, then in verse 9, pray then like this, Our Father in hell, heaven, hallowed be your name. Now, most of us don't use the word hallow unless we're talking about like Halloween or something along those, right? Something along those lines, right? So what does this idea mean of being hallowed? It's a prayer and a declaration of who God is. It's saying great is your name. Holy is your name. Wonderful is your name. You are the creator. You are the sovereign one. You are the one above, bigger than all things. You are the one that is wiser than I am. It's a, it's a declaration and a prayer. God, I know you are the one that's bigger than I am. Not only are you father and you're near to me and you incline your ear to me, but you are the sovereign God, the one who is over all things, in control of all things, that has no enemy that is strong enough. It's what Jesus is reminding us here. Now, how does it kind of show what we desire most? Look at verse 10. Your kingdom come, Jesus says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
So what do we desire most? God isn't impressed by many words. He already knows what we need before we ask. We see that in verse 8. But it's not just how we pray that reveals our heart, but it's what we pray about, what we're praying for. And the reorientation of starting with God is, is this. This is reorientation number two. Our prayers should reorient us away from focusing first on ourselves to focus on God and who he is. And that's what we see in hallowed be your name. May your name be made great. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is an act of submission or surrender, if you will. Just as Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane said, Lord, take this cup from me, but not what I will, but your will be done. That's why Jesus prays, God, may your name be made great. And only after that, it's only when we have something greater than ourselves and we believe in it that we actually are willing to surrender to it. If you believe in a really small God that's only really, you know, really weak, a pansy God, then you know what? Like, you're not going to surrender your desires to that because your desires are stronger than a puny God. What you want right then, what you're chasing right then, is bigger. It's only a God that is great, whose name is great, who is in control, who is sovereign, that we can willingly and lovingly and joyfully lay down and surrender ourselves to him. So it means we must ask God every time for us to not live for our kingdom, for us not to be building our brand, even on social media, not for my resume, not for the way that I look in school, not for the friends that I have in school, not for the, the job that I have. Our life is best served when our life isn't about us. It's exhausting being the center and God of your own universe. It's exhausting and it doesn't work. If you live in a way that you're constantly trying to climb and grind to the next thing, guess what? That's exhausting. You, you can never get off the wheel, the spinning wheel, because there's always people coming after you. We're watching, like, sometimes we'll watch Suits. And that show is exhausting because they're always like, oh, my gosh, I'm so insecure because somebody's going to come and get me at my job. You know, like, that's exhausting. It's annoying. And yet so many of us are like that because we're the center of our own universe. It must, means we must reorient our hearts. What are we spending time on? What are we putting our energy toward? In other words, whose name are you working for in your life? Chuck Swindoll says it this way, the this prayer focuses on the Lord. It's his name, it's his kingdom, it's his will. If our prayer focus, focuses only on ourselves, our problems, our needs, our desires, our hopes and dreams, something's wrong. Our prayer should center on God the Father, his character, his kingdom, and his purposes. And it's only in, in that description, when it's reoriented that way, that then we are then free to release all of the things that, that we do need because scripture says he already knows what we need. 
Prayer isn't about getting what we want. It's about meeting with who we need. So the third thing that we see is the Lord prayer makes us answer, where is my hope and trust? Whose am I? Am I living out of an identity of isolation and an identity of orphanage? Or am I living out of the adoption of being a son and an heir? What do I desire most? Do I desire my own thing most? My own way? My own comfort? Or do I desire God's kingdom, his work to be done more than my own? And then the prayer answers, where's my hope and trust? Look at verse 11. Verse 11 says this, give us this day our daily bread. It's so simple, isn't it? It's so simple, but notice where it is in the prayer. If, if we were to be honest about the way that we, and myself included, orient our prayers, what's first? Give us this day our daily bread. Lord, I pray that you forgive me, but I also want to take revenge on those goobers that, that offended me. <laughs> I'm not going to forgive them so easily. Help me, maybe not to lead into temptation unless I really want to do it that day. And I hope your name is made great. And we, we, we reverse it. And when we reverse it, it's our, our, our prayers are messed up. And it's hard. But this is why Jesus teaches us this. Notice that it's only after God reorients our hearts to focus on him that then it, we are able to fully depend on God to look for, after our own concerns. Let us not disorder our prayer. So what, so what happens when we pray, give us this day our daily bread? What does that mean? This is the measure of dependence. Where, who am I trusting in? Am I trusting in myself to be able to put all this together in my life? Because if I'm trying to keep all the plates spinning, guess what? I'm going to be stressed out. I'm going to be anxious or I'm going to totally give up and I'm going to pull away and I'm just going to say, you know, forget about it. So what this prayer does is it reorients our hearts. It says our prayer should reorient us away from self-sufficiency to dependency and humility. Just like God with the Israelites. When they complain to Moses, what does God give them in the wilderness? He gives them manna, right? He said, whoa, I, I would have never left Egypt if I knew this is how my life was going to be. This is horrible. And yet, God meets them and gives them manna, but he doesn't allow them to store a bunch of it, does he? It ruins. Because God knows it's far more important that we depend on him than we live in excess. So are we trusting ourselves and our job or our bank account and our career plan? Another way of asking that, what if all of it didn't go down the way that you wanted? Would you still be willing to learn contentment in that? I've heard it said that fear and control is a lot like being in a rocking chair. It gives you something to do, but it doesn't get you anywhere. And so where do you need to surrender? God knows, and he says, ask. 
Give us this day our daily bread. But then he says it's not the only thing that we need. Look with me at verse 12. He goes on in the prayer. And forgive us our debts and we all, as we also forgive our debtors. The fourth question that, that is asked is how do I live with myself and others? If we're doing this ourselves, then I can guarantee you we will fall into two, one of two camps. Either self-loathing and despair because we know we fall short or we go on the other side and it's self-righteousness and we think way too highly of ourselves and we're completely unwilling to give grace in any way, shape, or form. What this prayer does is it reminds us that the lens that we live through is grace and forgiveness because that's what Jesus has bought for us. And therefore, because he has forgiven us, we must also extend this forgiveness ourselves. How do I live with myself and others? The reorientation is this. Our prayer reorients us away from self-righteousness, away from self-pity, and away from bitterness and resentment to grace, mercy, and forgiveness. Sometimes this is a long process, and you've got to pray this prayer or variations of it a long time before you can ever truly, to the bottom of your heart, forgive someone. But that doesn't mean you stop praying it just because it doesn't happen naturally. It reminds us, God, I've needed your forgiveness and I have that, so then help me extend it to others. The final thing that we see in verse 13 in the Lord's Prayer is, is this. Look with me there at verse 13. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It asks the question this. It answers this question. How do I live in freedom and victory? Again, the three words, relationship, dependence, and surrender. If we surrender ourselves, our desires, our pride, we live in dependence, which is a prayer, God, meet my physical needs. God, you've met my spiritual needs in forgiveness. Help me to meet others' needs in forgiving them. And then, God, protect me from the evil one and all his plans. Protect me from myself and my own desires, my own flesh. How do we live in freedom and in victory? It's not by just toughening up and, and just pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. You'll, again, live a miserable life if you do that. We do it by asking God to protect us and help us and strengthen us. Here's the reorientation. Our prayer reorients us away from pride and purely fleshly concerns. Notice, this is spiritual. There's so much that is happening in the universe that is beyond our physical capacity to see and to touch. There's so much that happens inwardly that is not physical, but that is spiritual. And it's admitting, God, I need your help, not just physically, but I need your help emotionally and spiritually. And it turns it to holiness, a desire to pursue God and everything, and spiritual protection. Here's what the free, this is where the freedom comes in. And, and this is from Richard Foster. This prayer means freedom from self-sins, self-sufficiency, self-pity, 
self-absorption, self-abuse, self-aggrandizement, self-castigation, self-deception, self-exaltation, self-depreciation, self-indulgence, self-hatred, and with a host of others just like them. It means freedom from the everlasting burden of always having to get our own way. It means freedom to care for others, to genuinely put their needs first, to give joyfully and freefully. The Lord's Prayer is meant to free us, not just by teaching us how to pray, but by teaching us and prioritizing what we ought to pray as well. So to close this morning, I want us to pause and to take a couple of moments and pray. I ask, and this is something I want you to pray about, God, where do I need to surrender and relinquish control? God, where do I need to admit that I am dependent upon you? God, where in your life do you, God, where in my life do I need to experience freedom? Help me to trust you in that. God, is there somewhere in my life that I need to confess? And is there someone in my life that I need to forgive? These are questions and prayers that I want us to pray as, as we close. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for your grace and mercy. I thank you for your love. God, you are our father and I thank you that you've made us your children in Christ. God, your name is great, you are great, your character is great. You are the one in control of all things. And so I pray God that you would give us the freedom to release some of the things that we're holding on to that's causing us to have fear and insecurity and, and difficulty and just whether that's bitterness and resentment, whether that's pride, whether it's uh, some kind of um, independence that we're trying to do it on our own. God, give us what we need. Give us this day our daily bread. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven in our lives, in this church. Forgive us, God, of our sins and help us to forgive others as well. Lead us not into temptation, God, but deliver us from evil. Strengthen us, God. And it's in your name we pray.